Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Censored. I'm Aoife Vrednach, a historian who prefers to read novels over proper history books. Hence this podcast. If you check out the show notes, you'll find links to my Patreon if you want ad-free episodes and some extras. You can also share the episode with a friend. Spread the filth around a bit. This episode is about The Bell, a magazine published in Dublin between 1940 and 1954, apart from when it stopped briefly between 1948 and 50. Yonks ago, when I was doing my PhD research, I read a few issues of The Bell, but it wasn't directly relevant, so I had to leave it aside. I was pretty devastated because The Bell is so bracing compared to the newspapers I had to read. The magazine's content includes journalistic-style exposés of social issues like slum life. Then there were think pieces on censorship alongside poetry and short stories. Its two editors were famous in their own right. The second editor, Pather O'Donnell, was one of Ireland's few socialist intellectuals. The Bell's first editor was Sean O'Fuelloyne, who I've talked about lots in the podcast. He was the author of a few banned books. See my episode on Bird Alone back along for more on that. And he was also a loud critic of the censors, who didn't conceal his disgust at the volume and range of works banned by the state. So, for example, in 1942, the pages of the bell were full of editorials, letters and essays critically interrogating the censorship regime. When he sought contributions for the magazine, he wrote about breaking silences and opening up debate. The terms of these appeals suggest a culture that was pretty reluctant to speak up. So the magazine explicitly attacked state censorship, but it also tried to challenge social censure and the broader culture of silence. Oddly for such a controversial magazine, the bell was never banned, even though the censors could and did blacklist magazines. The authors who wrote for it, like Brendan Behan and Kate O'Brien, were banned as novelists, but the censors ignored them when they wrote for the bell. It's strange because it seems like the sort of magazine that would automatically piss off the censors. But then what if the censors didn't need to ban everything? Were there other forces that marginalised criticism? And what about questions of form? Did the way something was said make a difference? 
To discuss the wonderful world of the bell, I'm joined by Phyllis Baumanns from the University of Leuven, who is writing her PhD on the relationship between magazine culture and the short story, focusing particularly on the bell. Hi, Phyllis. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining me. Uh, hi, Eva. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. Great. I'm looking forward to learning more about the bell. I have read occasional issues of the bell, but I've never gone into a deep dive of the magazine itself. So I think this could be a lot of fun. So the first thing I want to know, I suppose, the bell is very well known in kind of scholarly circles. It gets quoted a lot. But who bought the bell? Was it widely read at the time? Because it seems very famous now, posthumously. Um, yeah, that's a very a good question. Who who bought the bell? Um, it's it's a bit difficult to answer, I think, in a way, or rather difficult to answer properly because we don't have any well kept um, ledgers with subscriber names, which we do actually have in the case of, of Irish writing, for example, by David Marcus. He kept a very neat list of of all his subscribers. But for the bell, we don't have any um, documentation as to the um, occupations or geographical locations of subscribers. So we can't really make any definite claims about its its actual readers. But we do get a a fairly good picture, um, I think, of its intended or its ideal audience by studying the the editorials and the advertisements. Um, So judging from the magazine's opening editorial, um, as well as subsequent editorials, it's very clear that the magazine sought to address um, a very broad um, spectrum of readers. Um, and the phrase, we are absolutely inclusive, um, was a phrase that it opened with um, and that would return in, in subsequent editorials. Um, so it really wanted to attract um, a diverse body of readers um, from north to south, um, Protestant um, and Catholics, from um, urban Dublin to, I don't know, rural Tipperary, for example. Um, and the bell really was to be a kind of home um, for all these different voices. Um, and so in the opening editorial, again, by Ofuelan, um, which he, he is a telling phrase in itself, really, he called the opening editorial, this is your magazine. Um, he really tried to mobilize readers um, from all corners of the island by um, addressing them directly by saying, um, and I'm quoting here, Whoever you are then, O oh reader, um, Gentile or Jew, Protestant or Catholic, priest or layman, um, big house or small house, the bell is yours. Um, so this broad readership very much corresponded with the magazine's um, founding principle, um, which was based on the idea, you know, that, that Ireland and its population was made up of or, or influenced by um, many different strands of Irish identity. So you had the Gaelic strand and, and the Norman and Anglo-Irish and English and etc. Um, and that these different strands had, had left um, their mark on um, Irish culture and Irish identity. Um, and in that same vein, the Bell also tried to challenge this um, idea of a Catholic monomania um, by giving um, space to to voices from different um, religious denominations, so not just the Catholic one. Um, So it featured articles on what it meant to be a Jew, um, a Quaker or Presbyterian in Ireland. Um, And the idea was then that this very diverse readership would um, send in contributions um, very realistically describing their corner of, of Irish life as they lived it, as they knew it. Um, and experienced it. And then taken together, um, these pieces would create a kind of uh, collage or snapshots of actual life as it was lived on the island as a kind of antidote 
or challenge to the, the narrow romantic view um, of Gaelic, um, rural, Catholic, um, Ireland. So these uh, three pillars of Irish identity that were propagated by de Valera and to replace that then with a more pluralist and more complex view um, of Irish identity. So that was then, let's say, the readership that it strove to address. Um, in reality, I think it was not that inclusive. Um, its readership consisted mostly, I'd say, of, of middle class to lower middle class, um, small town intellectuals. Um, Conor Cruz O'Brien, um, he, he described um, the Bell's readers at the time as teachers, uh, librarians, um, junior civil servants, so the, the lettered section um, of the Irish um, bourgeoisie. Um, and then to further qualify this, this aim, this desire to be inclusive, it also it predominantly targeted male um, readers, um, which is visible from the, the articles that it published and also from the advertisements that it carried. So for, for banks and for insurance companies and, and those things which would have spoken more to the, the male segments of, of society and, and the vast, vast majority um, of contributors were, um, yeah, was male. So it really was a magazine by um, for and about men. But yeah, generally speaking, I think we can say it was the small town intellectuals that would have bought and read um, the bill. It's interesting you say the small town, because of course, the editors are based in Dublin, aren't they? And it's, you know, it's published in Dublin. And I suppose a lot of the mainstream media are based in Dublin, the Independent and the Press and the Irish Times. And I just think that's really interesting that it it's a more diffuse readership imagined and in actuality. Um, seeing as I live in, you know, what's what's considered regional Ireland, it's nice that there's a something that broadens the uh, perspective a little bit. And so how did the readers in these small towns and cities, how did they get a copy of the bell for themselves? Did they write away for it, like with subscription through the post or did they go to the local news agent? How did they buy it? Um, um, in both ways, both both of the ways that you mentioned there. So readers could procure copies uh, by subscription through the post um, and they could also buy copies at the news agents, um, either as regular customers that they would ask them to, you know, get their monthly copy um, and um, or as just uh, individual purchases. And, and, you know, that sounds very straightforward. I, I guess it sounds that you could easily get your hands on a copy. I think in reality that m may have been a bit more difficult um, I think, generally speaking, books in rural Ireland were hard to come by because the number of good bookshops outside of Dublin and Belfast was very limited. Um, so that in itself is already an obstacle, I think, for readers who would want to get the bell. Um, and then on top of that, libraries and bookshops um, also often actually self-censored. Um, so they would refuse to stock, uh, as I'm sure you know, they would yeah, refuse to stock works um, that they thought were, you know, pernicious to the mind. Or, or uh, um, So I remember actually going through um, some of the Bell's copies um, at the National Library and then finding that a, a page had been torn out um, that uh, of a story that dealt with illegitimacy. So, you know, even if you managed to get, you know, to read a copy at the library, maybe somebody had been there before you and um, removed something that they hadn't agreed with. It's fascinating, isn't it, how people appointed themselves censors of other people's reading? Absolutely. Yeah, so definitely that shows that the bell fell within that kind of category of, of what was considered suspicious. Um, so the, the magazine really had this aura of kind of 
contraband around it. Ofuela himself had become a kind of byword for promoting evil literature, and he'd been banned twice himself be before he started the bill. Um, and I remember reading in a, a memoir um, by um, Brian McMahon, the, the famous storyteller from Kerry, and was also a school teacher, and he contributed many stories to the bill. Um, I remember reading in his memoir that his association with the magazine um, was viewed with suspicion by some of the local uh, clerical authorities, um, and also in a memoir by Honor Tracy, um, the British writer. Um, she worked as an um, editorial assistant for the Bell, um, who describes uh, similarly that they were an object of suspicion in some quarters. And she describes as one day when she was um, alone at the office of the Bell, um, and then somebody she describes as a, a clerical spy, um, came snooping around the office and kind of shouting at her, um, you're all communists in here and you're, you're all anti-clerical in here. So um, it was definitely a, um, a controversial publication. And then, I mean, just as its um, association alone with literature was already suspicious, um, but also for the way, of course, it tried to ad advocate for, for frank and honest treatment of taboo topics. Um, so, you know, if you if censorship was a way of, of protecting people from the realities of their lives, um, the Bell's mission was precisely to uncover these realities, to actually talk about these things um, that would usually get the kind of hush-hush um, treatment. So it wanted to start public discussion about controversial issues um, that challenge the teachings of the Catholic Church. And so uh, what to do with our illegitimate children, for example, was one of the things uh, Foyle wanted to discuss or... Um, it wanted to talk about the declining birth rates, for example, and what lay at the root of that. <laughs> so it, um, in some areas, um, especially in small towns, as we were talking about small towns, the magazine was surreptitiously sold from under the counter, um, covered in, in a kind of a protective wrapper, um, and then passed between news agent um, and customer with the, the cover facing downwards um, also, um, with a kind of furtiveness that is now associated with pornography, um, so this whole transaction had a kind of um, conspiratorial air around it. Um, so that was, I guess, how readers could get a copy of the bell. But it was also, of course, passed uh, along between readers. Um, and Ofuelon himself, he liked to boast that, um, you know, each copy would, would um, go through at least 10 hands. Um, and so the, the actual the print run would be um, 3000 issues um, per copy. Uh, more or less, and he, you know, kind of thought, oh, you know, actually, in reality, that would have been closer to 30,000. Um, but, you know, of course, this is the self-promotion and the kind of hubris, maybe, of the editor. But on the other hand, there's also an account by Dermot Foley, the librarian from County Clare, um, who has written about how he noticed that copies of the bell would be kind of secretly passed on between librarians and teachers um, in small country villages. It sounds like the sort of thing you had to know what it was in order to get hold of it. So someone had to tell you and give you a copy and then maybe you could order it and get it like the dirty magazine. So it was a, it was in a way quite confined that way that you couldn't just walk in and see it on a shelf. No, I, I, I doubt that. Yes. That's just fascinating. Maybe that's why they didn't need to ban it because it was a restricted readership already. And can you tell me some more about the tone and the style of the magazine 
I mean, periodicals have a voice that emerges as you read many issues. And that's part of the problem with my censorship bingo from the novels. You can't really do a censorship bingo on 10 years of a periodical to work out why they censored it. And The Bell had two unusual taglines, didn't it? Its first was a magazine of creative fiction. And then it said, a survey of Irish life. Now, they seem quite different as aims. How did it manage those two ambitious agendas? Um, so, yes, you're, you're absolutely right that there there's definitely that mix of these two agendas. So on the one hand, um, the Bell really wanted to document life, to show life as it was. And it had that strong um, sociological character, which makes sense because sociology as a discipline hadn't really established itself at the time. And that role was then taken on by writers. Um, and the Bell is also often credited um, with kind of hibernicizing this documentary mode that under the mass observation movement in, in Britain um, was already prominent there. Um, so in that spirit, uh, it promoted citizen journalism um, with pieces such as I Live in a Slum or Two Years in a Sanatorium or um, The Life of a Country Doctor or I Wanted to Be a Nurse or these kind of um, articles that really show that the magazine wanted to represent life in the present and not an idealized version of it. So that would correspond with that the tagline, a survey of Irish life, which it really began with. Um, and you also saw that they tried to not just represent this present reality, but also to change it, to improve it. So there were also more essayistic uh, kind of pieces on prison reform or on, on architecture or city planning that, that really sought to transform um, society for the better. So you had that dimension on the one hand, and on the other hand, um, um, Ofuelon had very strong literary ambitions also for the Bell. Um, so it very much also wanted to be a literary magazine. Um, and Ofuelon in particular, more so than, than O'Donnell, I would say, um, felt that the literary standards in, in, in his country were poor, um, and he wanted to revitalize Irish literature by finding new literary forms for this um, new literature um, and by mentoring young aspiring writers. Um, so apart from these documentary pieces, um, the Bell also printed poetry, um, novel extracts, um, it had a monthly book review section and so, uh, and it published lots of short stories and the short story really became the kind of mainstay in the Bell's um, literary revitalization project. So every issue contained on average two stories, it had a short story competition, um, it had a special issue devoted to the genre. Uh, and so Ophelan really tried to emphasize this literary side and to promote the modern short story as the new um, genre for Ireland. Um, and he also published a series of essays actually on how to write um, modern short stories. So he was very didactic and, and, and it it's, wouldn't come as a surprise, I think, that, that he trained as a teacher. Um, so... And he would he would sometimes even rewrite their work, um, much to their dismay. And he would um, select a, a story that was printed in, in in that issue, and then he would um, actually write a page of advice on you know what was good about it and how it could be improved. Um, so it, yes, it had these two agendas: the documentary and the literary. Um, I don't think necessarily that the Bell was very unique in that. Um, up until mid 20th century, I'd say magazines often had a mixture of culture and literature uh, and politics. Um, and it's only after mid 20th century, I think that these kind of bifurcate along either or. Um, 
having said that, though, I think that this line between being a magazine of creative fiction and a survey of Irish life, it wasn't always very clear cut. Uh, wasn't always so very easy to separate between these pieces. And I think that many of the rules that Ofoelon imposed on the documentary writing, because he really had a very specific view of how he wanted things, um, he also imposed these on the short stories and, and vice versa. So they both had to be of the same length. Um, they couldn't um, contain generalizations or vague ideas. They had to be rooted in close observation. Um you know, spring from personal feeling and, and, and lived experience. And so, so the generic boundaries between these two yeah, contributions, they were sometimes a bit um, hazy. And I think that this, you know, the fact that you can't really easily distinguish or separate these two um, ambitions, I think is also clear in the kind of taboo topics that the Bell wanted to draw um, attention to. So editorials would frequently um, encourage writers to take up controversial topics um, and really try to fight against um, the country's inability to, to approach life frankly. Um, so in one editorial, for example, Ofuelon would um, encourage writers to take up topics such as birth control, um, unmarried mothers, yeah, um, illegitimacy, homosexuality, uh, prostitution, venereal disease, so very progressive. Um, and these have often been understood as pertaining to the documentary pieces or the essays, which is understandable because it it printed essays and, and um, pieces of experience about um, these topics. Um, but you also find that these topics are also, they also return in the short fiction um, that the Bell published. Um, so there are a number of stories on, on homosexuality, for example. Yeah, so um, so there are a number of stories in the Bell that would, for example, deal with homosexuality. So there was a story, Girls, by, by Velmore Kearns, about three girls living in a boarding house together. And then one of these girls turns out to have lesbian feelings for one of her flatmates. Um, in another story, we have a story about a male nurse uh, working in a um, TB ward that turns out to have feelings for, for a boy patient. Um, there were many stories also about illegitimacy um, in the Russell of Spring, for example. There's a girl that flees um, from Dublin to her cousins in the countryside uh, with her son, her illegitimate son, under the pretext that she was widowed. Um, but then when she's exposed in the end, um, she's sent away by this family. Um, then there is a, a beautiful, very interesting story by um, Mary Beckett. Um, the story is called Teresa, in which a young girl in Northern Ireland, um, she sleeps with a, a, a black soldier from the US that was stationed there during um, wartime. Um, and she gives birth to a, a black child that she then keeps. And everybody in, in um, her community is very uh, accepting. Yeah, those, those stories sound amazing and very unexpectedly controversial in that that's the sort of material the censors are coming down hard. That's extraordinary. To turn again to the kind of more journalistic aspects of the novel and the fact I find it fascinating that his editorial style was almost to kind of blend the two genres, the fiction and the eyewitness uh, elements that, you know, he's such an imposing personality as well, Sean Ofuelo, and he really was an incredibly powerful ideologue in his own way. Um, and so they discuss things, like you said, illegitimacy, which we have kind of tended to believe nobody talked about. 
And there was a real campaigning edge to that kind of contribution, wasn't there? But I noticed that some of those pieces were anonymous. Was that unusual at the time? Is it unusual in the context of the magazine and the fiction that was published? I, I think it's not nece- necessarily these these socio-political pieces, um, for example, about pr- prison reforms or um, the workhouses um, that were anonymous. I think most of those anonymous pieces, they, they are really, as you say, these um, these documents that tell of personal experience, and then they would sometimes be signed by um, a library assistant or a secondary school teacher or um, for an article that was entitled Speaking as an Orange, Orange Man, um the um yeah the the signature at the end was called was one of them you know so this was obviously someone who didn't want their name printed there and i'm i'm not sure i don't think that that's necessarily unusual i think it may have been risky for people at the time to show these these either murkier sides of irish life or to represent an unpopular or controversial viewpoint and i remember reading um vivian mercier the the critic um he suggested that of those journalistic pieces, um, it's particularly those anonymous ones that were the best ones, he says. And, and perhaps then that, you know, you really needed this kind of anonymity to, to really uncover these these darker sides. Um, and, and maybe they just didn't want to be recognized by others for fear of social sanctions or to be ostracized or to um, endanger. That's not the right word. Or we better word. Endanger makes sense, actually. <laughs> I mean, boycotts are a pretty terrible thing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, to to endanger family, um, colleagues, uh, or or neighbors, uh, etc. Um, and and yes, you're absolutely right. You don't see that so much in the in the literary sections. But on the other hand, there were also many mid-century professional writers who also worked under pseudonyms. And I mean, now that's that's commonly known. I'm sure it was at the time as well. But I'm thinking of Frank O'Connor, who changed his name when. Um, his fellow librarian um, Lennox Robinson was was forced to resign from the library, and they were both librarians on the basis of a story that was deemed blasphemous. Um, and you had uh, Conor Cruz O'Brien, who worked as a civil servant at the time, and in the Bell he wrote as Donald uh, Donald O'Donnell. Um, and again, and in a way, that's I guess also a feature of periodical publishing, which you know, in in the let's say nineteenth century Victorian periodicals. Contributors were often anonymous, and in the Bell you also had a series of interviews that were run by um, the Bellman, um, or um, you had a, a regular feature, the open window section, which was um, cultural criticism and personal opinion, um, that was printed under the pseudonym Gulliver, and this, you know, this turned out to be um, Michael Farrell, but. Um, so it's not particularly unusual, the anonymity that we see in the bell. It's just interesting, I suppose, compared to now when so many personal experience stories are rooted in people's actual real name, their real faces. And, you know, there's a very definite shift in our culture of personal experience narration now where the authenticity has to be grounded in an actual real person, no pseudonyms allowed. And so if we look at the literary content more closely, then I want to return to what you said about the short stories, um, because short stories have really started to catch my attention in these kind of magazines as a way that literature is disseminating under the nose of the censors, I think. I think that a short story 
as a form, and especially in magazines, was less controversial, weirdly. Um, and it seems that in the Bell, a lot of famous Irish writers who are known for being banned, such as Brendan Behan, they wrote for the Bell. And you would think that maybe that might, you know, draw attention. But the Bell was never actually censored by the state itself. Why do you think that was? What saved it? Well, first of all, I guess we, we should maybe make a distinction in the sense that, no, the bell was never banned, but it was censored. That's a, an important distinction, I think, that we need to make here because it was censored for, for its content, but it was only censored for its wartime content. Um, if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So, um, editorials, for example, that would uh, refer to the political situation um, in Europe during the emergency period, they were censored. This article that I referred to earlier about um what it means to be a Jew in Ireland that was so heavily redacted by the censors that O'Foylan didn't want to publish it anymore, so he had to hold it over until um, had to hold it over until after the war. Um, and the bill also planned to to, to print um, uh, a response to the the Irish is- issue of Horizon. Horizon was kind of the the British counterpart to the bill, and they printed an Irish issue. So the bill wanted to print an English issue, which they couldn't do because anything that was you know sympathetic towards the Allied forces um, was not allowed to be printed. Um, so in that sense, it was censored, but only um, for political censorship, wartime censorship, which is 
it's interesting, as you say, because it was there was a, a plenty to you know to plenty of reason to be censored on on moral grounds, um, and I think one of the reasons perhaps that the the magazine wasn't banned was that most of these these stories of, of, of that would take up these taboo topics they they were written in in the short story genre, um, which was already a genre of minority interest. Um, and, and different forms of artistic expression were also held to different standards. So theater, for example, had no official censorship. Um, films, they attracted little attention because it was only starting to uh, establish itself as an artistic medium. And I think that there was a general disregard for short stories, which was changing at that time. Um, but it is true, as you, yeah, short story collections weren't read very much. Of course, there were examples of short story collections that were banned. Um, Ophelan's debut collection, Midsummer Night Madness, um, Beckett's More Pricks and Kicks, and also Nora Holt. Her short story collections were uh, frequently banned. Um, and you can't really easily compare, um, you know, if you, if you go through the lists of what was banned, you can't easily uh, come up with some kind of ratio as to, you know, novels and short story collections. But you do, as you leave through these reports, you do get the impression that short story collections didn't really appear um, very easily on the censors' radar. And I also remember reading a comment by one of the censors, um, Professor McGinnis, I think, about um, Sean O'Fallon and Frank O'Connor saying, oh, you know, they they didn't have the ability to write anything but short stories and they were not able for the sustained work of a novel, you know, so that really shows the kind of maybe disdain or, or disregard um, for that genre. So that minority interest of the genre definitely played a role, I think. And then on the other hand, I think it also has to do um, with the way that these stories um, in the bell specifically relied on, on modernist short story techniques, which actually camouflaged um, their, their non-conformist content. So the short story genre in itself um, hinges very much on silences. Um, is more about what it leaves unsaid, what it leaves out, than what is actually stated um, in the story. And this has been often this has been called um, the aesthetics of silence of the short story, or a kind of strategic um, reticence that the genre would employ, um, which very much has to do with the brevity of the form. So because it has to be short, um, it has to suggest things that that have been left out. I think. It was William Trevor who described the short story as the art of the glimpse and that its strength lies um, in, as much uh, in what it leaves out um, as in what it puts in. And Claire Keegan, she's also uh, said that the short story requires a, a discipline of omission. Um, and I think that these kind of um, literary techniques, they helped the they helped to elude, I think, the, the smutty passage marking practices of, of religious zealots, you know, who would screen these books for their obscene content. And I think you would very easily miss these references if you're um, not really, well, maybe it's too strong to say trained in these conventions. But, you know, you would really have to read the story properly, maybe read it twice sometimes to really um, to find out what it actually is about. And I think in that sense, it is no coincidence that it is precisely these poetics that are promoted in the bell. So O'Fuelan had a whole series on, as I, as I said, on how to read modern, how to write modern short stories and how to use techniques such as suggestion and implication and omission. Um, and he, he very adamantly urged writers that information must be conveyed 
um, in the most indirect manner possible um, in short stories. Um, so I think that it's an interesting combination. So on the one hand, to promote these kind of um, these kinds of literary techniques and to to urge writers to talk about these taboo topics. So you'd find that these stories would, um, let's say, they would begin um, like in in medias res, which would which is typical for modern short fiction to do. Um, and so they would they wouldn't talk necessarily about this this taboo topic. Let's say you're, it's a short story about illegitimacy. This actual act of premarital sex would be skipped over entirely, um, and it would be more about the, the repercussions. Yeah, it sounds really interesting that you can uh, suggest more through the short story forum just by virtue of its of its brevity, so that that might be mean leaving out words that you know, a skimming reader would find. So this, mm-hmm. the dirty-minded reader would be going through a page looking for the word thigh or yes. the word breast. But if the short story writer is not going to use those words because they have chosen to hint or allude or maybe just to talk about the aftermath, then you won't get the words. So just, like you say, the red pen. I love the idea that people are like skimming through it going, can't find anything, can't find anything. It's okay, whatever. <laughs> Yes, exactly. I mean, there's this this one story about an, an uh, illegitimate child, and and it never uses these words. It refers to it says it calls it that calamity, or the news had spread, or it had happened, um, and it really requires this kind of reading between the lines to figure out um, what is going on there. And this other story also about uh, illegitimacy. Um, so the in this story the the illegitimate status of this child is only implied through a kind of faint blush that appears on the protagonist's cheeks when her cousin remarks oh you know you're you're too young to be widowed because she has said oh you know it's not an illegitimate child it's because the father had died um so it yes in that sense i think that these techniques would they, they don't go hand in hand they don't and also of course that the way that the the censorship act censored periodicals was so different to novels wasn't it because it was a number of issues had to be considered contentious so the dirty-minded reader had to find more than one occasion where something was discussed and I think that must have been an important reason what do you think? Yes absolutely as you say, they had to be regularly um, objectionable, which meant that they could offend with impunity in six out of 12 um, issues per year. And I actually tried to count for for, for, uh, for the, the magazine's run to see if they would maybe strategically try to, you know, place these stories. But that's not the case. They, they really follow up um, on each other. So it's not that they try to avoid censorship in that way. Um, yeah, but as you say, I mean, the banning of periodicals was very difficult and these bans would only last three months and there was always this time lag uh, between, you know, a formal complaint and the actual ban, which is ironic because, yeah, I, I don't know if I, if it makes sense to say that because it's part of your series, but it was initially, censorship was initially conceived to, to intercept uh, corrupting and, and foreign influences from British and American magazines and then the fact that the legislation was so ill-equipped to actually deal with magazines is, is kind of ironic. It is. It It's always surprised me that the exact opposite of what they wanted actually happened. Because in the debates, they say, well, obviously, we're not going to ban books. And then subsequently, all they do is ban novels. <laughs> but the very things you complained about, the newspapers, kind of 
like most of them are fine it seems you you it's a very strange result of of a piece of legislation that it did the polar opposite to what it claimed it would do mm-hmm. would also maybe because the bell is published in Ireland that it helps to get away with it as opposed to coming in because the the surveillance of foreign publications was uh, part of the censorship ma- machine, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the fact that it was printed in Ireland by Cahill's um, meant that it, it couldn't be intercepted at the shores in that way. Whereas the um, Horizons Irish number, for example, that was confiscated by the police uh, on the usual grounds of obscenity. Um, so yes, the fact that it was printed in Ireland... Um, would have made that difference as well. And and yeah. Which is once again, another irony. <laughs> the home produced could get away with just a little bit more than the dirty foreign publications. <laughs> it's such an interesting magazine from the point of view of the editorial line and the way it was received and the way it was read. I mean, there's, there's just a lot in it really, isn't there? I think that perhaps also... You know, when talking about how the bell could get away with it. And of course, it wasn't just the bell, because between the 30s and the 40s, um, no Irish periodical was banned. It was only foreign ones. But I think for the bell specifically, it may also have had to do with, with Pedro O'Donnell's personal connections, um, because I think he was uh, good friends with two of the censors, um, Jack Pickett and, and Christopher O'Reilly. Um, and I think that will have had to do with that. Well, these centers, they were professors at St. Patrick's training college. And that's where Pedro O'Donnell trained um, as a teacher. Um, and, and in a later interview, I think um, in a later interview, he also stated that, oh, they would never ban a thing that I was responsible for. So it also had to do with, with those um, smaller, yeah, with those things. With the smaller personal stories that Irish life is replete with. I know your man and it's grand. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Phyllis. This has just been a fascinating uh, glimpse into a magazine that I think if it was more widely available, we'd probably still be reading it. It's just been great to talk to you about how it was received and why it was and wasn't censored in its own way. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, uh, Aoife. It was a delight to talk to you. And could I end with a a call to listeners, actually, if they read the... Can I I do that? Work away. Okay. Um, yes, if there's any listeners um, who who used to buy the bell, who used to read the bell, who wrote to the bell, um, it would be lovely to hear from you. And I'm sure that my contact details will be um, in the show notes. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. That's a great idea. Anyone who read, you know, controversial material, get in touch. <laughs> Doesn't the bell sound great? Shame you have to go to a university or national library to read it. It's not been digitised or anything. So it's still the preserve of a small and knowledgeable elite. Next episode will be about Liam O'Flaherty, another one of the country's rare socialists, but also a big name in mid-20th century Irish literature. I want to consider how he became a banned author, not just an author of banned books. Till then... Keep your hands clean and your minds filthy. Hey. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.